If you would, please turn with me in your Bible to 1 John 2. And if you don't have a Bible, there are some at the back at the coffee bar on the left side. You're welcome to go and grab one. If you're new with us, welcome. We are walking through uh, 1 John, just literally passage by passage seeking to understand it, grow in it. We believe as we sung that the scriptures are God's word to us, that they tell us the truth about who God is and what he has done for us. Uh, You may have questions about that particular issue. Uh, Why do we believe the scriptures? Aren't they just written by people? Didn't they change a lot over time? Those kinds of questions. There are some great books out that can help answer those. Um, One of those is this book called Taking God at His Word. It's fairly new, only been out a few months. It is fantastic. If that's an issue you're interested in, you're willing to read it, I'd love to give this one away. Are you interested in that topic? Michelle, come on down. You're the next contestant. On you get a book. Excellent. Good to see you. There's more of those back there at the coffee bar if that's something you're interested in. So 1 John chapter 2, we're going to finish out the end of 2 together today and jump into part of 3. So if you would look at verse 28 with me. I'm just going to read the whole section we'll be talking about today. So 1 John 2:28, And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, speaking of Jesus, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he's righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father's given us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins. And in him, there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he, Jesus, is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. By this, it's evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Well, the Apostle John is relentless, isn't he? He just called some of you ones of the devil. Aren't you happy you came today? He told us previously and repeatedly that we must obey God. John has said that over and over and over and over. In chapter 1, he said that if we have fellowship with God but walk in the darkness, we lie. He said in the early part of chapter 2, a way we can know God... And a way we can know that we know God is if we follow his commands. 
He also said in chapter 2, whoever abides in Jesus ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. And again in chapter 2, whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in the darkness. And one more, whoever does the will of God abides forever. And now chapter 3, he says in no uncertain terms, God's people, God's children obey God. John's point is crystal clear. If you want to know God, if you want to know that you know God, then look where? Just look at your behavior. If you are increasingly obeying and your heart isn't driven by self-salvation or a desire to please people, then you can be confident that you know God. But if you habitually sin or have never thought of being convicted, not of prison, but of sin, then you don't know him. He just says it over and over and over and over. Do you feel the weight of those verses? Do they sit heavy on you? Let's be honest. Or maybe I'll just be honest to get us started. I'm not an axe murderer. I don't beat my kids. The only person I've ever had sex with is my wife. I pay my taxes. I haven't been high lately. I work hard. (laughs) I've never been, just to clarify. (laughs) And I rarely exhibit much road rage. When I actually see a living neighbor, I stop and say hi. So I'm a decent guy, right? That's more the way we think. God, I see in your scriptures all this talk of the S word, sin. And it talks about it repeatedly. And I'm really thankful that you saved me, God. But I'm an all-around good person. I'm a decent guy. Maybe some of us in the room can't remember the last time we actually were broken over sin. The last time we wept when we realized how we'd harmed God. The last time we'd ask God for his mercy. I mean, people that do those kinds of things need to go see Tad or get pills or something, right? Or maybe you're here today and you're not a Christian. And you've simply never considered sin. Never had a category for that. We all think of ourselves as generally good, moral, upright, decent people. But here's the thing. John told us, 1 John chapter 1, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his words not in us. So I've thought about that verse in light of the list I just gave you. And as I have grown some as a Christian, I'm finding that the sins that I struggle with are less overt. They're, they're more things of the heart. They're not things readily able to be seen. And so I made a list of those. The Bible teaches that if you obey everything God says except one thing, then you're actually guilty of breaking the whole thing. So that's sobering. That weight is more crushing. So I haven't submitted all of my thoughts to God this week. If I'm honest, there's been moments of jealousy Anxiety, defensiveness, neediness, and selfishness. Yes, all in the last seven days. 
There's been days instead of trusting God, I frantically overworked. There was a particular day this week when I met with Andrea, who is, uh, as you heard last week, she's stepping down from her role on staff in order to work full time. She, God love her, is like a Jedi of organization. And so she brought me this package of stuff and said, here. So I listened for two hours and then I broke out in hives. If there was a forest to run to, I would have done so. It's a lot of stuff that she does. I hurt people with my wit this week. My joking went too far yet again and again and again. There were times I struggled to trust, days I struggled to read the scriptures, days I struggled to commune with God in prayer. I didn't take every opportunity presented me to speak to somebody about the gospel. And internally, I got very frustrated with the nincompoop who made a really dumb decision. I'm surprised there's anybody still sitting here listening to me. I still sin. still struggle. Maybe they're not the big massive things, but if you're guilty, God says, of one, then you're guilty of the whole. So like you, I still need Jesus. I still need him as much today as I did the day I accepted Christ as my Savior when I was 11. The need simply doesn't change. My need is tremendous. In fact, the distance between God's commands and my ability to meet those commands is as humongous as the span of the universe from one end to the other. Today, I want to talk with you about how. We can obey God. Because that's what John's told us in this section. So far, he simply told us, obey, obey, obey. But in this part, in this section, he tells us how. He tells us why. He's thrown a new concept in. I don't know if you caught it. The first several hundred times I read it, I didn't catch it. And we urgently need to be people who hear what he encourages us with today. It's as though John set out the bitter truth again, obey God, but then he put some sprinkles on top. He tells us how. Have you ever watched a painter paint an incredible landscape? Anybody done that? Or maybe you've drawn one yourself. They don't do that how I would have expected the, the way my brain works, I would have expected they're going to start on the left and paint everything all the way to the right till they're done. That's not at all how it works. Actually, we'll start with some chalk and we'll draw on a canvas what they're going to draw. And then usually they'll pick up one color and draw the mountains, for example. Stand back and look at it. And then they'll go to the next color. And they'll just work their way through the whole peace. That's what John does. That's what he's done here. John just threw in not the outline of the mountains. He's already given us that. Instead, he took up some green and he painted a color none of us know what it is. We don't ever see it. He he drew some trees and he drew them throughout. It's an incredible picture he's given us. 
John has told us so far that we can know God and that we can know that we know God. And that he's pounded it into our heads that Christians obey God. But here, he's told us why and how. And it all comes down to this one word. John said that Christians are people who've been born of God. From the end of chapter 2 all the way through the rest of the letter, nine different times John says, you, Christian, have been born of God. And he has never said it up to this moment. That's a weird thought, isn't it? Been born of God? Seems kind of strange. Look at verse 29 of chapter 2. If you know that he, Jesus, is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. And then chapter 3, verse 9. No one who's born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. What in the world is he talking about? If you just step back and think about the concept, it sounds something more like you hear in some weird cult, not a main church. But the truth is that Christians are people born of God. And that, it turns out, is the key that unlocks the door of how to obey God. John's claim is that those who know God have been born of God. They've been given new life. And if you're here today and you're not a Christian, I hope that you'll sit on the edge of your seat because over the next 30 minutes or so, I want to describe to you what it means to be a Christian because being a Christian is not following a particular set of ethical rules. It's not obeying better than everybody else in order to get accepted by God. It's not accepting some particular cultural or political stance. It's that something has happened to you. It's that the scriptures teach you've been born of God. So Christians, you're about to be reminded of the essence, the very core of what Christianity is. Not the fluff, but the meat, the essence. You see, if you're a Christian, then the truth is, this bizarre idea that you can be God's child, be born of God, is something that's already happened to you. It is the means by which you can obey God. Now, a few of us in the room have been Christians a long, long, long time. And this doesn't sound odd to you at all because you've heard it a lot. But would you just hear this as though you're hearing it for the first time? Because it's kind of a shocking idea. The God of the universe, who's a spirit, says you can be born of him. That's weird. Now let's consider this topic being born again in three ways. One, what are the indicators that that's happened to you? In other words, how do you know, what does it look like? Number two, what is it actually to be born of God? And number three, how do you use the fact or the truth that you've been born of God? So one, what does it look like? Indicators of it. Two, what is it actually? 
and three, how to use it. And if you're hearing this today as I have absolutely no interest in it at all whatsoever, then you're, of course, free to get up and go. Or if you're hearing this and saying, I already know all of those things. Let me describe just for a moment before we jump into it why this might matter so much. God says the source of how you follow him, the very essence of the means through which we can obey God is the fact that you've been born in him. So if you struggle to obey God, if sin feels like a weight on you, it may be because this has never actually happened to you. Or it may be that it has, but you're relying on your own strength to obey God. You're trying harder and harder and harder. And that doesn't work. Honestly, the most miserable people I have ever met have been people who either thought they were saved and really weren't, or Christians who are convinced they can be Christians on their own merit. I think those are the most miserable people out there. It's not actually the people who have never heard of God. It's not actually the people who think they need God for absolutely nothing and can do it all on their own. It's people who are convinced they already have him but don't, or people who already have him but think they don't need him. So maybe that would apply to a few of us in the room. So number one, what are the indicators of salvation or of being born again? What does it look like? Well, born again people know that something has happened to them and they know that God is the one who did it. Turn with me back to 1 John chapter 1, verse 11. Or I'm sorry, John, let's go all the way to John, the book of John, the gospel of John. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. I turned back and I realized there is no 1 John 1, 11. Hopefully I'm not writing scripture. That would be a problem. So John, the gospel of John, written by the same guy. John 1, verse 11. This is going to sound really familiar. It is the language that John wrote 1 John in. 1 John 1, verse 11. He, Jesus, came to his own, and his people did not receive him. But all who receive him, who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born, there's that word again, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So how does this being born happen, it happens not because we will it in and of ourselves, but it's something that happens from above. God does it. Peter, another author of Scripture, said the same thing in 1 Peter chapter 1. Love one another earnestly since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. So that doesn't really tell us what it is, but it tells us, how it happens. Being born again is something God does. It's his work. And an indicator that this mysterious, bizarre, strange, weird thing has happened is that you have an internal sense that God has done something in you. Uh, I don't normally talk that way. Honestly, 
probably to the detriment of the scriptures. I probably don't emphasize that part enough. There is a mysterious work that the Spirit does. This mysterious work is described like the Spirit blowing, like a wind that comes. And we can't predict it. We don't cause it. It's a work that God chooses to do. John's point over and over and over again in the Gospel of John and in 1 John is that that is a work that God does. That the children of God are people who've been born again. And that that's why they obey. So born-again people know it's impossible to live a spiritually righteous life apart from this happening to you, apart from being reborn. If you stop and think about it, it's pretty insulting what God tells us in the Bible, often. If you're looking for a book to make you feel light and fluffy and happy all the time, this isn't it. Because God's going to tell you things like, you are so bad, so horrible, so sinful, so awful, so helpless, so beyond hope that you can do nothing to affect positive spiritual change in and of yourself. In fact, you're so wicked, only the death of Christ could deal with you. Now, an indicator that you've been born again is that that's not all that offensive to you anymore. In fact, you quite know it and quite appreciate it because you've seen what you're really like. And God loves you in spite of it. That's why John would say, see what love the Father has for us. And there'd be this joy that comes out of that brokenness. It's no longer something you resist or lie about or push away. You embrace it and you worship God because of it. In some way or another, all the world religions who believe in a personal God will say in some way, shape, or form, this is the way to be right with God. Do this and this and this. All of them. But Christianity says doing right is based on what Jesus has already done. So our doing doesn't come from us. It comes from what's already been done for us. It's a massive difference. So... Friend, if there's an of-courseness to your being a Christian, then either you don't understand your faith or you don't have any. Because that's not the way the Christian faith works. You've either not really had this something happen to you or you've diluted it so badly that you don't really understand it. Here's what I mean. If you say, of course I'm a Christian. I grew up in a Christian home. I read my Bible. I'm a good person, I don't gossip, I don't look at porn very often, I work hard, of course I'm a good Christian. If that's the way you think of your Christianity, that's not Christianity. That's not the way it works. There's got to be a sense of gratitude that God's given you something that you don't deserve and you did not earn. Or it's not Christianity. It takes God initiating and God doing something in us and us believing in order for this strange rebirth, this born again, to happen. So that brings us to our second idea today. Born again, what actually is it? 
What in the world does it mean? Why in the world should we care? Well, you're already there in John. Look at chapter 3. And I want to show you the most famous passage in the entire Bible on this very bizarre topic. 1 John 3, verse 1. I'm sorry. I'm messing that all up. John, make up your mind. Why did you name the books after you? It's confusing, John. John didn't really do that. Someone else did. John 3, not 1 John. John 3, 1. Not 1 John 3, but John 3, 1. If you don't have any idea what we're talking about, that's fantastic. All right. John 3, 1. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees. All right? Think the top spiritual dudes, the ones you would like to be like. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one else can do these signs unless you do them, unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So John didn't come up with this idea. He swiped it from Jesus. All right, verse 4. Nicodemus said to him, it's a fantastic question, how can a man be born again when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? All the mamas in the house say, no way. (laughs) It hurt the first time. The second time would be the end of my life. Verse 5. Jesus answered, truly, truly. Which is a way of saying, pay attention, pay attention, pay attention. I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of Spirit is Spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. So, a couple thoughts. Being born again makes it possible to see and enter the kingdom of God, which just means the place where God's rule and reign is obvious, where busted, broken, messed up things are being put back together because God's there. Number two, Jesus said to be born again is to be born of water and the Spirit. Well, that certainly clears it all up, doesn't it? Now, there's tons of discussion we could have about exactly what that means. But if you take all of the scriptures together that speak to this issue, here's what Jesus was getting at. You and I are born physically alive, but spiritually dead. So from the moment you're born, you're physically flamboyant and ready to go. And spiritually, you're dead. To be born again is for that to change. It's to go from being physically alive and spiritually dead 
to physically alive and spiritually alive. It's to be spiritually reborn, born from above. It's to get the family resemblance, not from mom and dad, but from God. So if we were going to define it, here's the way we would define this. To be born again is the Father. So God the Father reveals God the Son in the gospel, in the gospel word, in the scriptures. And then the Spirit brings about the transformation of death to life. So if we were sitting in some theological classroom together, that would be something like the definition we'd be given. The Father reveals the Son in the gospel word and the Spirit brings the transformation of spiritual death to spiritual life. But you didn't come to a theological classroom. So let me see if I can say it a different way. When you were born physically, you got the combination of two things, right? You got dad's DNA, you got mom's DNA. You were born of the stuff of your parents. Now, have you ever had a, a, somebody that became, maybe later in life, a really good friend? You got close, close enough you knew their mannerisms, you knew not just the way they look, but the way they think, you knew the weird idiosyncrasies they have, and you found yourself wondering, that person's strange. Where did they get that? Of course you don't actually say that, because then it's a former friend. So this is still a friend. And then along comes Thanksgiving or a wedding or Christmas or something and a relative comes in town. And then you're sitting there and all of a sudden you realize, ah, that person didn't get their weirdness from themselves. Look at his father or look at his mother. My goodness, he looks like his mom. That's creepy. Or he's got that weird jig just like his dad. Or he talks like him. Everybody, have you had that moment? All right. That's because mama, daddy had fun and they made you. Their DNA came together. Are you still with me? All right. So you are a marvelous mix of the DNA of your parents. When you are reborn... So not not reincarnated, not physically dead and coming back as something else. When you're reborn, when your spirit goes from dead to alive, you're getting God's DNA. God is taking part of his very life and he's giving it to you because he's giving you his spirit. His spirit comes to live inside of you. You can't see it. You can't touch it. You can't taste it. It doesn't smell, but it's real. And it changes you. It changes you in an instant. Ever bit as literal as being physically alive, you become spiritually alive. God's life is imparted to you. And then for the rest of your life, God is inside of you, transforming you, changing you from the inside out. That's why much of religion is absolutely ridiculous. Because it tells you, if you do these things out here, then it's going to change what's in here. And God says it's the exact opposite. You need a heart change. You need 
a new spirit. You need to be made alive. So basically, that's what the rebirth is. It's you saying, God, I've lived apart from you. I recognize that. I believe that Jesus came, lived a perfect life on my behalf, died in my place, and miraculously rose again. And now that life I need. In fact, I need it as bad as I need air to breathe in for my physical life. God, would you change me? Would you give me new life? And he does because he is great, not because you're great. How do you use it? How do you take the fact of being born again and make that reality in everyday life? Honestly, that's the part, at least for the majority of us in the room, where we struggle. So let's see if we can take this really bizarre, weird concept and use it. Back in 1 John, in only 12 verses that we read today, 1 John, not John 1, but 1 John. You don't need to turn there. I just wanted to make fun of myself. In 1 John... We read 12 verses and six times, six times, John says, you've been born of God, born from above, or you're God's child. So I went to a lot of school to know if it's said over and over and over, it's probably important. He urges us to remain, to abide, to stick with it, to apply this truth that God says if you're a Christian has already happened to you. But how in the world do you do that? It's not much use in daily life if you don't know how to use it. You can have the nicest car in the world, but if you don't know where the key goes, you're not going to get very far. You've got to know how to tap into the fact that God has made you born again. How do you do that? I think the best answer comes not from John, but from Paul. So if you would humor me and turn to one more scripture, Romans chapter 8. And I'd love you to go there so that if you're a person that marks in your Bible or on your app, that you'll actually do that for this passage. Because it gives us a marvelous answer for how to use something that seems so weird and abstract Romans chapter 8, verse 14. Romans eight fourteen. Now remember when we said what it is. What is being born again? It's God taking his life and putting it into yours. Such that we're told in Scripture, I no longer have a life of my own. I don't do my own thing. I follow God because God's in me. God's in me. So Romans 8 is going to tell us how to use the Spirit inside of us. Verse 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Think of that like Daddy. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, 
provided we suffer with him in order that we also may be glorified in him. Oh, if we could spend the whole day together here. This is marvelous, amazing, masterful words. Life-changing words. It's possible to have the best car in the world and not know how to use it. It's possible to have the very life of God inside of you and to have no clue how to rely on Him. John tells us what Paul is telling us. Paul says that we've received the spirit of adoption as sons. So the Holy Spirit takes up residence in our lives. He gives us new life. And somehow, literally, he lives inside of us. So brothers and sisters, those in the room who are Christians, you've been reborn. God's always with you. You've been adopted into God's family. Anytime, anywhere, no matter what you've done, you can say, Daddy, Father. And God not only hears you, He loves you. God not only loves you, He listens to you. God not only listens to you, He responds to you. God not only responds, but He always, always, forever does what's for your good. And one of the things that's for your good is that he tells you, he reassures you, he comforts you that you're his. The most important thing about you is not what family you're physically born into. It's not what degree you've earned. It's not how much money you've had or could earn in the future. It's not what clothes you wear or where you work. It's not who you're married to or who you want to be married to or who you were married to. It's not if you have a child. It's if God says to you on the inside, you're mine. I don't mean you you literally hear him with your ears. You know that you know on the inside. That is so good. Now that doesn't mean you won't have doubts or trials or troubles, but it does mean that God forever is with you. I hope being a child of God is more than a doctrinal category for you that you know to put in a box and check. This good truth of God is meant to be experienced. Obedience to God will never flow from dead doctrine. If it is simply a box you check, you will battle for the rest of your life to obey God and you will turn out bitter and angry. Obedience flows from the living truth that God has given you His very life. And that gradually turns into wonder and worship of God. Obedience pours from a personal conviction that a person has died for you and now is in you. A person. Not a concept. 
Not a doctrinal category. Not a series of truths. But a person. God Himself is the key to living the Christian life. That's what John's telling us today. John says you... Your life can't be a jump from one sin to another to another to another if you're really saved. You can't keep habitually living the rest of your life in sin if you're born of God. Now, why would he say that? That sounds so arrogant and mean. Sounds like the person last night that I did a wedding for whose mother told me when I asked her, have you visited this other church? They they moved to another part of town. So I told them, don't go here anymore. Go there. You ought to go somewhere close to you. Church isn't a service you sit in once a week. It's a family you join. So I'm actually okay with us getting smaller if that's what is happening. If people are leaving to go somewhere closer to them. Now she wasn't even a member here. She just visited a few times. Our goal isn't to be the biggest show in town. It's to be the family that, of whoever God brings. And so she said, no, I didn't really like that one. They're legalistic. I said, well, what is that? What do you mean? What is legalistic? And she told me, almost as though quoting a scripture, well, here's what they said to so-and-so. It's an extremely biblical concept. I'm not going to tell you what it was. But it, it's never legalistic to... Ask people to obey God. John said, obey God. That's not legalistic. What's legalistic is to say, you can do that and then God will love you. Or to say, yeah, God loves you, but do it. John says, God loves you. God lives inside of you. Do it. Do it through Him. That's a different thing. John says God Himself lives in you. You're His. He's adopted you. You will become like Jesus because the Spirit of Jesus lives in you. The Spirit is constantly reminding you that you're His. Say yes, not no. Bill Gates is 59 years old. That was a smooth transition, wasn't it? Imagine if somebody called you today and said, surprise, Bill Gates has named you as the only person on his will. Bill is worth currently $81 billion, $81 billion. When he kicks the bucket, it's yours. You would live different from that moment on. Would you not? Christians, brothers and sisters, God, who makes bills 81 look like pennies. God says, you're His heir. God says, all of His resources are at your disposal. God says, you are His child. 
The God of all the universe says, I am yours, you are mine, all of my resources are you, yours, you will be transformed by me into my likeness. Isn't that wonderful? Now, can I say something to just the ladies in the room? All the dudes, plug your ears. All right? Did you notice, I was subconsciously almost plugging my ear, I just realized as I was scratching it. Did you notice in here that it says that you've got the adoption of sons? Did you catch up? Did you catch that? Is that offensive to you? You I'm not asking you to holler out. That's not Bible written to men. If you were alive at this time, guess who was the heir? The oldest son. Do you know what is actually being said there? It's not some chauvinistic, misogynistic, disgusting Paul that wants to subjugate women. He's actually saying, ladies... And second-born, third-born, fourth-born, fifth-born guys. Everything that's the first-born is yours. God regards you as his son. Isn't that cool? So how do you use this? We're almost out of time. But let me emphasize and then we'll blog some more ideas. But it seems that what Paul is emphasizing is prayer. That, that when we pray, when we simply talk to God, when we share our thoughts with Him, when we lay our burdens before Him, when we say things to Him that we're ashamed that we think and feel, when we've done what we've promised we would never do again, again, when we're scared, when we're happy, when we're joyful, when we're terrified. When we go to God, what's actually happening? The most important thing isn't your Christmas list is going to get dispensed. The most important thing is the Spirit of God inside of you is talking to the Father. Jesus is interceding. And the Spirit is reminding you, if you'll slow down long enough to listen, you're His. You're His. John said back in 1 John that you are God's children now. Brothers and sisters, that is who you are. So before you get up, would you say to one another, we're God's children. He loves us. How can I pray for you so that God would remind you that you are His? And if you're sitting here and you've realized, 
I don't have the first clue what you're talking about. That's fantastic. There'll be some people here standing at the front after we dismiss that would love to answer any question you have. Not to sell you a used car, but to simply help you understand and maybe take the next step towards God. Let's pray. Father, what incredible truth that we, people who have rejected you and run the other way, you have pursued. And because of Jesus, we have believed in you and you have made us your children. Oh, how differently we would live if we actually believed that. God, may we obey you this week, not simply by trying harder. May duty turn into delight as it flows from a life that is increasingly convinced that God lives within me. Therefore, I really can obey by relying on God. And I pray for those in the room who have never found this to be a reality that, God, they would not make the mistake of leaving without having a conversation with someone. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.